All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship together with the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the amazing gift of the body of Christ, Lord, and I pray as we gather together to worship you, I pray that um, we would be edifying and encouraging to one another, Lord, and as we get into your word, Lord, this uh, first Wednesday of 2024 um, for our service, I pray that uh, tonight would just be an amazing beginning of a series of great Wednesday nights of getting into your word and worshiping you and clinging to you and praising you and offering ourselves to you. And um, Lord, thank you so much for this body. And I pray that you would knit us together in love. And as we get into your word now, Lord, I pray that your word would not return void or empty. But we believe in the authority and the power of your word, Lord, to transform us and make us more like you. And so uh, we invite you to change us, Lord. We pray that we would be good soil and ready to receive all that you have for us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you say hello to a couple people? All right, everybody, come on in and have a seat. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to 2 Corinthians. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 9. Just want to remind you also, uh, before we get into the word, that a week from tomorrow is our corporate prayer meeting here at church. And so that's going to be Thursday, a week from tomorrow, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock here in the sanctuary. So hope you all can make it out for that. So as we get into chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, Chapter 8 and 9 are chapters of giving. The context is that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he is desiring to take a collection from them. He's been taking collections from different churches so that they could bring it down to the church in Jerusalem, which had been having a lot of trouble financially and we're really struggling. So this was a, a big thing to Paul. You get that as you go through chapter 8 and chapter 9. You, you sense that it's very important to him, this collection for the church in Jerusalem. And through this, we get some very important insights into what it really means to give biblically and especially in a New Testament way. So we in chapter 8, you'll notice in verse 2, just sort of a, just to get our wheels churning here, he's, he's saying that it was in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality or their generosity. In other words, he's saying he's, he's blown away by the church at Macedonia because of how they gave. And they didn't have a lot, but they had great joy in giving, and it, it demonstrated their trust for God. So he's, he's sort of boasting about that, and he's telling the Corinthians about that because he wants them to have the, the same sort of attitude because he's going to come and 
take a collection, and he's been talking about it for uh, a year. And so he's, he's hoping that this church that he's been having so many problems with, that he's had to correct them in many ways and be hard on them and confrontational with them. He's hoping that they would be very uh, receptive, that this would be something that, as a rich, wealthy area, they would be very generous in their giving. Now, the key to giving, you see, is in verse 3 of chapter 8. He says, For I bear witness that according to their ability, he says, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. So they weren't forced or didn't feel like they had to do it, but their heart's desire was they wanted to do this, that it was exciting for them, that they were um, seeing this as, a, as an opportunity to serve Lord, the Lord through their, their giving. So look at verse 5. It says, And not only as we had hope, but they first gave themselves. So that's the key to giving. So you're not going to really do well in giving biblically with the right attitude and the right heart if you don't first give yourself to the Lord. So that's the first step. So you give yourself to the Lord. And then it says, and then to us by the will of God. So that was really the, the heart behind the giving that was so substantial in the fact that their attitude, it wasn't how much they gave, it's more their attitude, their spiritual attitude. And, and so Paul's bragging to the Corinthians about the Macedonians and the way that they gave. Look at verse 12. He says, for, there, uh, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. And so this idea of willingness, presenting oneself to the Lord first and then being willing to do whatever God would call them to do. So, th so that goes on then into chapter 9. So we're going to continue with that understanding of giving. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous, superfluous <laughs> to me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians. So he's telling the Macedonians like, hey, the, the Corinthians are going to be impressive as well. That Achaia, which is the region where Corinth was, was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. He says, yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and I find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought, 
it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation. So you see how important it was to Paul that their attitude and their heart would be right. It seems like he's not that confident that they're going to have the right heart. And that's why he's saying, Instead of just me collecting it when I get there, I'm going to send people before I get there to make sure that you have it. And this is a year later after he's already talked about it. But he's holding out hope and he's encouraged from some of the responses that the Corinthians church had to his first letter where he rebuked them. And they actually made some changes. Remember, this church is a carnal church or... This church would be a fleshly church or a church that was really struggling, denying themselves and, and looking at the way that they did things in a way that they would take up their cross and follow the Lord. So it was a, a very worldly church, you could say, and, and that's why they had so many problems. And so when Paul wrote his first letter, they actually responded well to that. And so he was encouraged, but you just get this feeling like this is a big deal, this offering and the way he describes it is it it's a way that they would be able to demonstrate their faith by how they gave so their giving would be an example of their relationship with God and and that's a lesson and application that we learn here is our giving is a, a representation of our relationship with God so he talks about the attitude in verse 6. He says, but I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, that word is literally hilarious giver. So you see how important the attitude is? This is a big thing. He's saying that when we walk with the Lord and understand this principle and how God is so good to us, then we'll have this attitude where we'll be excited to give to him. And we'll do it in a way where we'll, we'll do it joyfully and laugh. We'll laugh. It'll be a, a, a way that we'll experience God's joy. And he, he sets in, in order this precedent of if we give, here's a biblical principle, we will get. The more we give, the more we get. So obviously there are people that have really abused that and they will give and really fleece people in a way where they pressure them to give so that those people will materialistically benefit in a way that really is, God's not really calling them to benefit in that way. But we can't deny what's being said. And he is talking about Money. He is talking about that, but the, there's a broader principle. 
And this is, this is a principle that, that God is testing the believers in giving as a way to show our trust in him. And God is saying, if you, you give, I'll give you back more. If you give out of your heart, out of a understanding, trustful heart, then I will give back to you. And I have seen that happen. That's, that's how it works. I have seen God's people generously give, and I've seen God generously bless. I've also seen those who have a hard time giving and don't feel that that's a thing that they should do. And, and the Bible tells us giving is an act of worship, actually. And people struggle financially. And we know that because that's exactly what this is saying. People will struggle financially because they're not giving to the Lord. And they're not understanding that what they have is from the Lord. And because it's from the Lord, then we can give to the things of the Lord. And as we give to the things of the Lord, then God will give back to us more so that we can keep, keep that going. And it's really not about necessarily the things that a, a church or serving the Lord or providing for people in need. That's a part of it. But the biggest thing is finances is a way that we can demonstrate that we're trusting in the Lord. It's a way that we worship the Lord. It's a way that we say, Lord, you're in control and so here, take this and use it for your kingdom. And, and then he, he t- attaches an Old Testament uh, scripture um, in verse 9. But look at verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have abundance for every good work. So you see that principle? He's saying as, as we give, then God is the, going to be our supplier. That's what he's saying. And then as we give, we're then trusting the Lord as our provider. And as we're doing that, then we're demonstrating our faith in him. When we look at it like that, we can see that giving could be really exciting because we know that, oh, Lord, this is amazing how you provided for me. And, well, I could give this back to, to the body of Christ and to the work of Christ. And, and then let's see what you're going to do. And let's see how you provide for me and take care of me. And this, this is a life of faith. This also helps us not to be attached to materialistic things. God doesn't want us to be attached to materialistic things. So giving is a way that we can stay detached from material things. And I like what those missionaries that came from Uganda said to us a few weeks ago. They they just had an open hand like that. God gives, God takes away, but they always want to have an open hand. And you never want to just close that and not have what you have to be available to the Lord. So then he says from... Psalm 112, verse 9, he says, He has dispersed abroad and has given to the poor. 
His righteousness endures forever. Another Old Testament principle of how we can, through our generous faith, love, offering to the Lord of our finances, demonstrating our trust in the Lord, how those things can bless and benefit other people who are not doing so well. And it is a demonstration of the righteousness of God as we do that. So as our, say, for example, our church body, is, as we are able to help other missionaries and other works of the Lord that aren't able to have the resources that we have, then God's righteousness is being put on display as what we have is given to other people to build up the body of Christ. So he says, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the need, or I'm sorry, the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, God, God is the one who gives to us, he's saying, for the purpose that we would be generous with that which we get, he says, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So as God supplies and we're generous with what God supplies, then there's blessings, there's the righteousness of God put on display as those funds are being used to further the gospel and help those who need help. And then the end result of that is everybody's thanking God. Verse 12, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, he finishes this teaching on giving by getting us to look at Jesus and the gift that he was. That's an example of how we're to give. So God gave his only begotten son. This indescribable gift has blessed so many. And he's, he's saying that your handling of the material things that God blesses you with and gives to you will result in the blessing of many and it'll be an indescribable gift and testimony of the goodness of God. And so those are some of the most, if not the most important teachings on giving in the New Testament, material giving. Chapter 10 really switches gears. Now he's going to, going to go after the false teachers that have come to Corinth after he left. 
So Paul was there for 18 months, and then he left. In those 18 months, he established a church. He trained them. He taught them doctrine and the things of God. And then as he left, then these false teachers came in. They came in with the false doctrine. And it's, it's amazing because it sure didn't take long for this to happen in the early church. And it's been going on ever since. And we are facing that now. Biblical Christianity in our culture is dying out. These words that we see here are very important for us, for the survival of the church. Not that the church could ever be overcome because the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. But a church that's not a biblical church won't survive. Or it will, it will survive but not be a true church and not be what God intended. It'll lose its salt and lose its flavor and lose its light. And it'll actually be a servant of the enemy. That's why the enemy wants to infiltrate the church and still have the church have the name of Christ but deny all the biblical teachings about Christ. And that's one of the reasons that there are so few verse-by-verse Bible-teaching churches. Because if you teach through the Bible, then God has His authority in the church, and God should have His authority in the church, not man. The challenge has always been what place does man-made traditions have in the church. And this was something that was sort of even a carryover from the Jews who put the traditions of men above the word of God. These were the Pharisees. But even when Christ came and he died and rose again, there were those that were were in different ways, just like we see now, trying to infect, infect the church with false doctrine. So Paul's dealing with that. So the tone changes in chapter 10 from chapter 9. You'll notice that as we go through this. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, I'm pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So his attitude in addressing this is a good precedent for our our attitude in dealing with confrontation and things like that is, is that we have the attitude of Christ, meekness and gentleness. So we're not just to clobber people with things. We're not to tear people down, but we are to confront issues firmly and sternly, but with an attitude of dependence on the Lord. And remember, Paul is not defending himself because he wants to to look good and save his reputation But what is at stake is doctrine. And what is doctrine? Doctrine is truth. So this is everything. If we lose truth, we lose everything. If truth is what every individual decides it to be, like my truth, then we shouldn't have this. I should just get up here and say, this is my truth. But at the same time, you can say, well, my truth is just the opposite of your truth. And then I would have to say, well, that's just as good. They're all the same. 
So truth is really at stake, and, and truth is everything to God. Without truth, we don't have anything. And the truth that we have, we are given and has been revealed in the word of God. So Paul, is, he's, he's using the word pleading, so that sounds pretty, pretty passionate. He's pleading, and he's, he's doing it in a way of meekness and gentleness. He says, who in the presence, who in presence, I am lowly among you, but being absent, I am bold toward you. That sounds kind of strange. Because is Paul saying that when I'm with you, I act one way, and when I'm not, I act another way? Or when I'm with you, I'm all all nice and smiley, but when I get away, I write letters, just scathing letters. Why does he say this? It's because that's what he's being accused of. So what was happening happening was Paul was being defamed in his person. This is what we call an ad hominem attack. So they're attacking his person in order to discredit his message. And so they were saying, oh, Paul, when he's away, he's a tough guy. But when he's with you, he doesn't act like that. So Paul is using that sarcastically. And he says in verse 2, he says, But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. So not all. So we find there's a, a minority within the church. Not the majority. The majority is what we're looking at in chapter 8 and 9 where he, he was confident in their response and the majority responded to his first letter in humility and, and correction. But, but there were some in there that were being influenced or poisoned by these false teachers. And he's addressing them and he says they think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So the big part of the attack was discrediting Paul in a way where they were using world worldly standards of success to equate to ministry success. We're going to see that as we go along. This is exactly what we find in our culture where a successful church is often seen in a way where the world deems or what the world deems successful. What is that? Money, popularity, influence, and things like that. This whole letter is Paul dealing with that issue, which is very interesting because this is an issue that our culture struggles with. So he's saying that, that you're very geared towards fleshly understandings of things. And what I want you to know that even though we walk in the flesh, meaning that physically we were present there, however, in verse 3, he says, even though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
And it is interesting that he uses that word war. And you might want to underline that or circle that because that's very accurate with what the church is faced with in this world. And the church and individual believers, what we're faced with in this world, the best way to describe it is warfare. And our warfare is not against people. It's against the enemy and the forces of darkness that come against the light of Jesus Christ. If we never understand that, if we never get a hold of the understanding of this spiritual battle, of spiritual warfare, that is, it is war. That even as, as we sit here now, there are forces looking to put things, thoughts in our minds, put things in our heart that are not of God. That when we open up the Word of God as a body of Christ, we also open up many adversaries who are looking to steal the seed or distract us from what, what God wants for us. But this is a war. And he's saying, because it's a war, it's a spiritual war, then there, there's a way that we fight in this war. And the way that we fight in this war is not according to the flesh. So it's interesting because what Satan's trying to do to each one of us is to pull us in the flesh to start fighting. And that's the temptation to get in the flesh. And we have all these provocations to be in the flesh. And if he can get us into the flesh, then he's won. Paul here is saying their battle is not, it has nothing to do with the flesh. And so because of that, in verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or not fleshly, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. So we have weapons. Specifically, he's talking about fighting against false doctrine. So if we just take a little pause for a second and just think about the things that we think and the things that we believe. Are those coming from Scripture? There are things that we think or that we believe that are not from Scripture. Then we can say that that's a stronghold that must be torn down. And the way that we tear down a stronghold is the Word of God. That's why the Word of God in our daily life is so important. That's why the Word of God, when we're facing an issue or a challenge or a struggle or persecution is so important. This is why we build up a, a bank. We invest in Scripture in our heart so that when we are faced with things that we see them correctly, we understand them correctly and what we know what to do correctly. The Word of God is all sufficient for all things that God has allowed to occur in our life. Amen. If we don't get that, this is, a, this is a struggle that many Christians have. 
To recognize that the Word of God is sufficient then is to enlist the only weapon that will be effective against the lies of the enemy. It's the Word of God. It is vital. It's not optional. It's not something that we can take it or leave it because there will be a void where the Word of God is not filling. And the world will come into that void. And the world has so many things to offer for that void. And there's many to pick from and and many that appeal to people in all different ways. But only that Word of God should fill the void. And the Word of God is that, that weapon that breaks down strongholds. Satan cannot defeat the Word of God. Jesus, when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, he said, it is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus was tempted with the biggest things that life has to offer. And what did he do? He brought out the sword of the Spirit and he started to go to work. It is written. It is written. He had a perfect word at the perfect time as a master swordsman wielding that sword in that occasion, defeating the enemy. This is what we want to be, master swordsmen, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and not just memorizing it, but using it, applying it, understanding the world by it. If you study the first few verses of the book of Genesis, you will have a worldview that will pretty much sustain you through everything in life. Just an understanding of the world, of man, of sin, of redemption, of heaven, of hell, of evil, of good, and all these things that are the, the basis for how we see the world and how we live our life. So the weapons of our warfare, the word of God, there's, there's prayer, there's many, there's Ephesians 6, there's, there's the, the full armor of God. But here's my thing. Do we know how to use it? Do we know how to use it? It says that these weapons that we have in God in verse 5, they cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Have you ever considered that? That these philosophies that come at us, these worldly, earthly teachings and philosophies, what they're really doing is exalting themselves against God. And I don't know if a lot of Christians understand that. Why do I say that? Because there are many churches and many well-known Christian leaders that actually bring those philosophies and ideologies into their teachings. And when you do that, what you've done is that you've invited the enemy to lie to the church. 
The enemy is running rampant in the church today. And the word of God is what breaks down the stronghold, what keeps us on solid ground, what keeps us from the temptations of going after every wind of doctrine. And there are many that appeal and they seem noble and right and good, but what they're doing is they are challenging God's authority that is found in His Word. They are challenging the truth. They are exalting themselves over and above the things of God. And this is what exactly what is happening in the church. The purpose of these lies, these are the things that Paul is facing in this church, that are exalting themselves against the knowledge of God is to bring, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is huge. We're talking about where Satan attacks our minds to think incorrectly. Just to, to get a little off of the truth. And just like a sailboat that gets a little off course, well, it might not seem like a big deal in the beginning, but if you go 2,000 miles, you'll end up in a completely different place. This is how Satan works. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So what is provided for us, and what is important is that we think biblically and as we do that, we're bringing our thoughts into captivity to Christ. That means that Christ owns our thoughts. That means that we don't allow our thoughts to go any way they want, but we watch it, and we're careful about it. Probably not a day goes by where I actually realize, like, hey, wait a second, this is, that's not of the Lord. I'm thinking about something. That's, I'm not thinking right. And I have to take it into captivity of Christ. And I say, Christ, this is, this is not a, a biblical thought. So I surrender this, and I bring the truth back into this situation. And when we start to do that, then our minds are transformed. That's what... Romans chapter 12 is talking about where our minds are transformed. Instead of being conformed to this world, that's what the world does. It wants us to think like it. What we're seeing here goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? This is what Satan does. Just a little suggestion, a temptation to think differently than God. And the solution is to bring that thought back into captivity of Christ. Surrender the thought underneath Christ and what he says. He says in verse 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So verse 7, he's dealing with these the way that the Corinthians are thinking incorrectly. The way that they were able to be taken captive by lies and false thinking. He, he says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? 
So that's a biggie. We're very prone to make decisions about things by how they look. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. And they were, they were doing it because the false teachers were saying pretty bad things about Paul's appearance. And they're, they're, think about the Greek culture and the Greek gods. And then here Paul comes in and he didn't look like them. And they, 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 wanted, they wanted their pastor to look like a Greek god. They wanted him chiseled. They wanted him on steroids probably. The tips of his hair frosted or whatever. Whatever they do. That's, but that's fun. it's really, it is funny. That's exactly what the church culture wants today. The church, many church cultures, the whole thing is built on the pastor and how he looks. I'll say Hillsong was a big one like that. And if you watch the documentary on that, you see these, really the, the pastor was seducing women to be attracted to him by the way he was dressing and the way he was acting and the church grew. And they couldn't figure out why he was having affairs with different people. They just, I don't, they just couldn't figure that out. And it's like, well, you're going there because you're, attra- and I know this because of the documentary that, that they've said that. But, you know, are, are we able to discern the difference between someone who's just really charismatic and snappy in their dress and works out a lot? But if they're not teaching the Word of God, we shouldn't want any of that. And the Bible talks about humility. It talks about lowliness. It talks about Jesus himself being lowly and not parading himself like that. So that, that's a big sign that something is not right. But Paul is saying, don't judge something by the outward appearance. He says, if, if anyone is convinced in himself or convinced himself that he is Christ." then let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is in Christ, even so we are Christ. He's saying that because they're saying, well, the way Paul talks and looks, we're in Christ, but he's not, because look at him. Now, mind you, Paul was pretty much poor and destitute and on the run and being stone shipwrecked he didn't have a lot of time to make sure his appearance was exactly presentable like everybody in Corinth would want him to be that's because he was busy in his faith and he's telling them he's like look if you say you're in Christ well Consider that maybe I'm in Christ too. Because you're focused on the outward. 
But maybe there's something more that you should be looking at. So in verse 8, he says, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave to us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. He's talking about how he used his authority. So he had been given authority by God, but how did he use it? He didn't use it for his own benefit. He actually suffered for the benefit of those in Corinth. He's appealing to that. He's saying, I might not look like a Greek Adonis, but remember when I went there humbly, lowly, even though I had authority given to me by God as his representative. And the proof of that is your own lives. Remember he said, you, you Corinthians, you're my epistle. So you're, the proof of your life, that you're born again, you're saved, that you receive the message of God, that's, that's the proof. In verse 9 he says, Lest I seem to terrify you by the letters, the letters of rebuke that he wrote to them. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. So that was their, that was their thing. So that is so messed up. You think about how Paul had given his life sacrificially to the church there, and then he goes on, and he's been doing that. We read through the book of Acts, and we see how he's just giving everything for everybody. And then as, as soon as he leaves, there's these false teachers, probably from the church at Jerusalem, false teachers from there. They're probably Judaizers, which means they were wanting people to do all the works of Judaism instead of knowing God by grace. But we find in chapter 12, which we won't get, we're planning on getting that to that this week, but it, it tells us that they had very loose morals. They were licentious. So they, they came in and they're just saying, well, Paul doesn't look the part and he doesn't even talk well. So this is, this is remarkable to me because even today, there's more weight in many cases put on the way a pastor talks and carries themselves than on what they say. There's more weight put on charisma than there is on truth. So it's amazing to me that we see this exact same thing in I mean, can you imagine? He, he leaves and they say, well, Paul doesn't look that great. He doesn't even talk that great. I don't know. You know, it's like if somebody had a, a squeaky voice or didn't have like a real, you know, carrying voice or something like that. And, it, you know, um, Athens was nearby. They were really into debate and the way people talk and how they talk. That was very important to them. And so Paul is saying this is very important for us because, because he's, he's teaching us something 
that we seem to, as a church in general in America, don't get that God's strength is actually made perfect in our weakness. That it's not our outward demonstration that is what is to be given to people. It's, it's through our weakness that God is seen. And the desire for people to elevate a man, that's not of the Lord. And so we, we have to look at this and, and wonder, are we understanding that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? That God uses the weak things of the world? He uses those who are not always the most presentable and the most charismatic and the funniest and the most entertaining. But what we should be looking for is the power. And we find that power in the Word of God. And we find that power in the Word of God that's being spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because what Paul is dealing with here and what we deal with in our culture is a Christianity that's unable to affect the deepest part of the human heart. It can affect the outside, but only the Word of God can affect us on the inside. And the Word of God does that, not psychology or pop culture or telling jokes or entertainment. That can't that can't get to where we need to get. And so when we come on Wednesday or Sunday, or when you're doing your devotions at home and you're, you're reading the Word of God, that's what gets to our heart. What do I mean by heart? A heart is us. That's the real us. And it's the Word of God. The, only the Word of God is able to do that. Everything else is just superficial. So in verse 11, he says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Dealing with that, Paul's different when he's there, verse 9. He's saying, depending on the situation, I don't want to come and have to be roughing you up and convicting you and confronting you. I don't want to do that. So better, before I get there, to repent and understand. And remember, he's just talking to some within the church that have been influenced by false teachers. And he's saying, understand what you're doing so when I get there, it'll be a lot more enjoyable in our fellowship. In verse 12, he says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That's a mouthful, but what he's saying is those false teachers, they're all looking at one another and comparing them to one another, competing with one another, trying to one-up each other, patting each other on the back, and all these sort of things. He's saying, your standard is not another person. We're not to look at another person 
and commend ourselves, saying, well, I'm, my oratory is a little bit better than his. Uh, I'm a little bit better looking than him. I'm a little bit more effective in this persuasive suite. We're not to do that. But what we're, what we're to do is do what God has called us to do before him and not before man. Our ministry is before God, or it's to God first. And as we minister to God, we subsequently minister to one another. But that eliminates then this striving and competing and one-upmanship or uh, patting, even patting on each other on the back and saying, oh man, that was, you killed it, man. That, that, message was just you knocked it out of the park and just we start to just do this evaluation thing and really you know there are people that they can perform in the place of a pulpit and people the the people will just eat it up but God is disappointed in that there are many churches like that the biggest churches are like that and because they're not telling the truth and they're not teaching the word God is not pleased and because many of those churches purposely gut the word of God so that people will come they'll just gut it they'll say some things but they'll gut the full truth out people love that in Jeremiah's day it said the people love that. They love when the word of God wasn't being taught and man was parading themselves and they, they would have their favorites and all these sort of things. So in verse 13, it says, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of our sphere, which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. So he's saying, we'll, we will boast. We'll, we'll boast about something. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. So that was the whole thing, the gospel. That was where the power was. That is where the power is. It's in the gospel. There's nothing more powerful than that. Romans 1.16, it's the power of God to salvation. So when we start to think the gospel's not enough or we have to make it more spicy or more entertaining, or we have to add all these things, and what we've done is we're gutting the truth. And you know what we're saying is, God's word isn't powerful enough. In verse 15, he says, not boasting of the things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel 
in the regions beyond you. See the focus of Paul's ministry. And not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. So that's what those false teachers were doing. So they were coming on the coattails of what Paul had done. Paul's labor, Paul's work, Paul's sacrifice. And they came in and they were trying to ride the wave of that, but change it in a way where it suited them more. And in a way, Paul's saying, well, why wouldn't you go out and preach the gospel and build the church that way instead of coming to a place that is already established and already has leadership? In other words, they didn't need you. Why don't you go and and plant churches and, and go and offer yourself to the Lord and work to spread the gospel with me? Why don't we work together in this? Have, have you ever talked with somebody and you're a Christian and they say they're a Christian, but they're trying to convince you in their pet doctrine or convince you of some other thing? I'm like, well, I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. What's the problem? We should be on the same page. Shouldn't we want to spread the gospel everywhere? But we have to have our little pet thing and our nuanced thing. And if someone isn't exactly on board with our thing, then we'll just spend our time trying to convince them to our thing. But the the point is the gospel. Go take the gospel out. Go look at the fields that are white and ready for the harvest. Don't start tearing down an established church. And that's what Paul is saying. Again, verse 16, he says, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. His whole argument is, is summed up of, let the Lord lead you and do what he's called you to do and stop bringing in your doctrine that's splitting and tearing people apart. Imagine from this point on all the different doctrines, all the different denominations, all the different teachings. Diminishing the power of the gospel. Making it more about man's thing than about God's thing. And as we finish this, which we're going to finish right here. The Lord is wanting to establish for us tonight to keep the main thing the main thing. If that's not enough, then the problem isn't with the main thing. There's something wrong with us. Because Jesus is all sufficient. His word is all sufficient. 
And so better to maybe investigate and think about ourselves and say, have I gone astray? Have I left my first love? Am I entertaining things that are exalting themselves against the truth of God's word? Have I gotten into the flesh? Have I gotten into bitterness or unforgiveness? Have I gotten into some hobby that's taking the place of God or work or something like that? There's something that's taking the place, moving me away from God. And maybe tonight, God's message for us is to come back to our first love and to come back to the work of the first love. And that's the work of the gospel. The work of grace. When we come back to that place, God not only is enough, He might be too much. You might not be able to handle it because His goodness is so good. And so be careful of trying to fill your void or fill the heart or fill your longings with something other than God. The reason you have those longings is because God put them there and only He can satisfy those longings. Heavy message for us tonight. A lot to think about. A lot to ponder. But it's the truth. And the truth is what sets us free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for how good you are to us. Thank you for your word. I pray that you'd write it on our hearts and our minds. I pray, Lord, whatever it is in our heart that we may need to repent of, that we would be willing to do that, Lord. You want to be our everything. You should be our everything. May you be our first love and may we fall in love with you again if we've left our first love. So we thank you, God. Thank you for your word. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.